Hello, and welcome to our series on biblical womanhood. This is the first lesson that I'll be sharing, and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Brother Paul Washer, the wonderful staff, especially the media staff at Heart Cry Missionary Society, my dear husband, and above all the Lord, for this privilege to share these teachings with you. And then I'd like to also thank you for taking your time to listen in. I hope you'll be encouraged and strengthened in your walk with the Lord as well as your understanding of biblical womanhood. Now, most of you don't know me, so I thought I would begin by sharing a little bit about myself. I was born here in the state of Virginia, and although I didn't grow up in a Christian home, I would sporadically attend church as a young girl. In a church service when I was about 12 years old, I went forward, knelt at an altar, and prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart. However, I didn't continue to go to church, and I didn't live at all for the Lord through my teen years. In spite of that, I thought I was a Christian because I had prayed, and I had asked Jesus to come into my heart, and I had been told that I must not doubt, but be sure that I was a Christian because of that prayer. As I went through high school, I wasn't really interested in the church or spiritual things, and I began to look for joy in all the wrong places. I really enjoyed school, but there was a deep longing in my heart that academics, friends, parties, nothing else could feel. There was a lot of conflict in our home, and I found myself very confused and depressed in fact, I became so depressed that at the age of 16, I took an overdose of pills trying to take my life. I didn't know where to turn, but shortly after that traumatic incident, I was invited to a new church plant in town. The people were so warm and welcoming, and before long, they felt like family. I began to show up for everything, Sunday morning services, Sunday evening services, Wednesday evening, Saturday morning visitation, any service the church had, I was there. Before long, I was asked to teach the little children in Sunday school, and everyone thought I was a devoted Christian, but there was still something missing. I had no peace, I had no joy, and no assurance that I was truly born again. I had talked to my pastor many times, and he would always try to convince me that I was a Christian. I remember a visiting speaker came to our church one time, and I went and talked to him and told him about my nagging doubts and lack of assurance. And because he'd seen me there at every service listening and taking notes, he said, you must be saved. You're the best teenager in the church. So I continued to silently struggle with my doubts and my fears. Well, my pastor convinced me to go to a Bible college that wasn't very far from my, the place where I had grown up. It was convenient because I had a lot of family in that town and it would be close enough for me to come home fairly often. So I listened to him and I enrolled in that school. My second week there, I made an appointment with the vice president of the college to talk to him about the debilitating uneasiness I was still experiencing. It had gotten so bad that I was having trouble sleeping and eating. And he had met me when he had come to my home church to preach. 
And like the others, he told me that I must be a Christian. It was only the devil who was trying to make me doubt. But instead of leaving with peace and assurance, I left his office more discouraged and depressed than I had ever been before. I knew something was terribly wrong, but I didn't know what to do about it. I had asked Jesus to save me so many times. I went to church all the time. I was a student at a Christian college. I was reading my Bible, praying, and witnessing to everyone I came in contact with. I didn't know what else to do. Well, the Lord in his kind mercy sent a revival team to our school, and I heard a man named Dale Faisenfeld Jr. preach a sermon on false conversion. For the very first time, I heard someone explain that you could dress like a Christian, talk like a Christian, and try to act like a Christian, and still be on your way to hell. I was alarmed, but at the same time relieved. And the Holy Spirit came, and he opened my heart to truly hear and understand. The scales fell from my eyes, and I turned to the Lord Jesus Christ with no hope in anything that I had done. I knew at that point that beforehand I had, without a doubt, not experienced a new birth. I had changed outwardly the way I dressed, the way I talked, the places I went, and the people I spent time with, but there had never been a heart change. I would have emphatically said that I wasn't trying to be good enough to go to heaven, that I knew salvation was by grace, but deep down in my heart, that's ex that is exactly what I was attempting to do. The moment I trusted Christ, it was of a huge burden of sin and self-effort rolled off of my back. I was free and my heart was filled with joy and peace. I remember later that year in our college literature class reading the book Pilgrim's Progress. And when we got to the part about the burden rolling off of Pilgrim's back, I, I was in tears. Lord, that's what you did for me. That was 47 years ago. And although I have failed the Lord many times over the years, he has never once failed me or left me for one single moment. Well, the next year, I met a tall, handsome man, and he soon asked me out. We only dated for three weeks, and he proposed. Seven and a half months later, we were married. Now, I don't recommend that, but that's what God did for us. And the Lord blessed us with four wonderful children and eight precious grandchildren. My husband has been in full-time itinerant ministry our entire married life, traveling all over the United States and Canada, as well as internationally preaching and teaching. And then 15 years ago, he also began working with Heart Cry Missionary Society as their Eastern European coordinator. I had occasionally taught women for years, but after my children left home, the Lord began to open many more opportunities for me to teach. I counted a great privilege to be able to help Christian women grow in their understanding of God's word and walk in obedience to it. Brother Paul Washer asked if I would share these lessons on biblical womanhood, and it is an honor for me to have this opportunity to share with you God's beautiful plan for his daughters taken from the word of God. 
He asked me specifically to address some of the unbiblical teachings and nature of feminism. Now, you may ask, what is unbiblical about feminism? The feminist movement is simply fighting for equal rights for women, right? It's, if asked about the feminist cause, the average person will answer, well, it's just about ensuring that women are not, are not treated in an inferior way to men. To make sure that women have all the opportunities for advancement and success that men have. And when it's presented that way, it sounds like a worthy goal. But the problem is, that's not even close to being a complete representation of the feminist agenda. Feminists insist that men and women are equal, as if that were a novel idea they dreamed up. However, the Bible was teaching that truth long before Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Gloria Steinem were. 2,000 years before the women's rights movement began, the Apostle Paul wrote, There is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Bible very clearly teaches that men and women are equal in value. But one of the problems with feminism is that it doesn't stop with the teaching that the sexes are equal. As Christians, we absolutely believe that in worth, women are equal to men. But we also realize that women are different from men. We're not only different in our biology, but we have different strengths, abilities, and inclinations. And the Bible assigns us different responsibilities. The scripture never even hints that these differences indicate any inferiority or inequality. We simply have different roles to fill than our male counterparts in the plan of God. However, feminists believe and propagate the lie that in order to be equal, we must be the same. We have to occupy the same positions and exercise the same authority as men in the home, in the church, and in society at large. That simply is not true. Equality is not sameness. While reading an article recently online, I came across a good analogy to illustrate this point. The young lady writing wrote, a rolling pin is different from a measuring cup. All of us who cook probably have used a rolling pin and most certainly have used a measuring cup. And she said, we can acknowledge that without saying that one is better than the other. And how strange it would be if we did. Imagine showing someone your kitchen tools and having them indignantly accuse you of feeling that the measuring cup was better than the rolling pin. Better at what? If you want to measure some flour, you would have a hard time doing that with a rolling pin. However, you'd have similar problems if you tried to roll out a pie crust with a measuring cup. A rolling pin has to be evaluated according to the standards of what makes a good rolling pin. And likewise, measuring cups have to be judged on their own terms. In the same way, God didn't intend for men and women to be the same. He created them equal yet different, and he has very different roles for them to fill. Now, you may not think that feminism is a big deal, but the more I have researched, read the teachings of wise and godly men and women, and most importantly, studied the scripture, the more I recognize the great importance and magnitude of this subject. 
It's so vitally important that we address this issue in the day in which we are living. In his excellent book, Equal Yet Different, Alexander Strock wrote, one of the most significant changes in human history has occurred in the past 50 years, the gender revolution. Now that book was written over 20 years ago and we have watched in shock and unbelief as the gen gender revolution has only expanded and stands more and more in stark contrast to the teachings of scripture. I believe with all my heart that the feminist movement laid the groundwork for much of the perversion that's becoming more socially accepted in our society. There's obviously a widespread movement aimed at erasing the distinctions between the sexes. But you know, the important thing is not what I think or what you think, but it's what the Bible has to say on the subject. And in order to adequately address the issue of biblical manhood and womanhood, it's necessary for us to go all the way back to creation and look at God's design in the creation of man and woman. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible. We're going to look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. After creating the heavens, the earth, and all the animals, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, up to this point in the creation account, God had spoken everything into existence. But when we come to the creation of mankind, something was different. Before he fashioned man from the dust of the ground and made the woman from one of the man's ribs, he spoke to the other two persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit and the Son of God. And he declared, let us make man in our image after our likeness. All three members of the Godhead were involved in the creation of the world, but they were particularly concerned with the creation of Adam and Eve. For you see, they were the masterpiece of God's creation. This was indicative of the honor and dignity given to both the man and the woman because they both were created in the likeness and image of God. The Hebrew word for man in verse 26 is actually a collective noun denoting the human race itself. It's a general term, including both male and female. And that's made very clear in the next sentence when God says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. As God's representatives, they both were given dominion over the earth. So up to this point in the narrative, we can agree with feminist and egalitarians. Men and women were created equal, but we cannot stop there because God didn't stop there. The Lord not only created men and women equal, but he also created them different. He wisely 
design the male and the female differently so that they might effectively carry out distinct roles. Please look with me again at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The first thing the Bible tells us about humans is that they were created male and female. The Lord made a man and then he made a woman. He didn't make another man or a clone of Adam. He made a woman. She was similar but different. She had her own biology and her own psychology and she was created to complement the man, not to compete against him. She was designed to help him populate the earth. She was created to be a loving companion and helper to him. God created men and women to give completeness to our relationships, to our families and our churches. And in order to be godly women, we must understand the purpose for which women were created. And so that we might better comprehend that purpose, I'd like for us to consider some differences in men and women that we clearly see here in the creation account. If you would, look down at the seventh verse of chapter 2, Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It is important for us to notice that the Lord created the man before the woman. Now, some people will say that the order of creation means nothing, but we know that's not true. We know that it is significant because when the Apostle Paul gave Timothy the restrictions on the roles that women are to play in the church, he used the order of creation as part of his reasoning. 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? For Adam was formed first and then Eve. The Lord created Adam before Eve to demonstrate that he was designed to be the primary leader. He was the central character. God spoke to him. God instructed him to tend the garden and to name the animals. Even the woman was created to meet his need. Another thing to think about is that even though Eve sinned first, God called Adam into account for his sin first. In Genesis 3:8, we read, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They were hiding out of fear as well as shame. Their eyes had been opened and their innocence was gone. They knew that they'd broken God's commandment and they knew that they were naked. When your children bicker and argue, you might try to determine who initiated the argument. You might seek to find out which child sinned against the other first, but that wasn't how the Lord handled this situation. He knew that Eve was the one who had transgressed his instruction first, but nonetheless, he held Adam accountable first. Look at verse nine in chapter three. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, why did God do that? Didn't he know where Adam was? Well, of course he did. He was demonstrating that Adam, as the leader, was the one who was primarily responsible and accountable for his family. 
when I was a little girl, my mother struggled as a single parent to pay the bills and put food on the table. She worked very hard. And so from a young age, I was responsible to watch my four younger siblings while she worked. My two brothers, when we were younger, had built a makeshift treehouse in our backyard. It wasn't sturdy, it wasn't well built, and it wasn't very safe. And because of that reason, my mom had instructed me, you are to never let your two little sisters get up in that treehouse. Well, one day while she was at work, my sisters pled with me to let them get up in the treehouse because my brothers and I would spend hours playing in that treehouse. Well, I didn't want them to be left out and it didn't seem dangerous to me. So my brothers helped me. We climbed the ladder and we helped my little sister, my youngest sister, sit down on the lowest platform. Well, as we were playing, the board broke and my sister fell, scraping her leg and it was bleeding and she was screaming and I sort of panicked, but thankfully her pants got caught on a nail and she wasn't seriously hurt. She didn't have a long fall. My brothers and I got her down and I was so relieved that she wasn't hurt. But when my mother got home from work, can you guess who was in trouble? My sisters didn't get in trouble for begging to get up in the treehouse. My brothers didn't even get in trouble for helping me get them up in the treehouse. No, I was the one who was disciplined because I was given the instruction and I was supposed to be the one in charge. You know, if a ship goes down, the captain is blamed. If a battle is lost, the commanding officer is held responsible. If a business goes bankrupt, the fingers pointed at the CEO. And the same thing holds true in God's chain of authority. First and foremost, the husband and father is responsible before God for his family. Pastors will give an account for the spiritual well-being of their churches. Leaders are always called into account first. God created the man to lead and gave him dominion over the rest of the creation. The Lord planted a garden for him and then gave him the responsibility to tend it. And then for the first time, God said, it is not good. On the first day of creation, the Lord created light and he said it was good. He gathered the waters into one place and called them seas and he called the dry land earth and pronounced it good. He created seed-bearing plants and fruit-bearing trees and said it was good. He spoke the stars, moon, sun, and other heavenly bodies into existence and said that it was good. He created fish and all the creatures that live in bodies of water as well as the birds of the air and he saw that it was good. Then God spoke all the land-dwelling animals into existence, the livestock, beasts of the earth, and all creeping things. And he said that was good. But when we get to the sixth day of creation, after he formed the man from the dust of the earth, God said, it is not good. It wasn't that he was displeased with the man he had formed. So what was it that was not good? Genesis 2, 18 tells us, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit or comparable for him. And then the Lord, in his infinite wisdom and kindness, created a helper for the man. 
one who was especially designed and uniquely designed to fill that role. So what I want to leave you with today is the undisputable reality that God created both the man and the woman in his own image, and he gave them dominion over the earth. They were equal in every way, in status and in value as the bearers of the image of God. But he also created them different. They were similar but different and were created to carry out distinct roles. It's clear from the biblical account of creation that the man was created first and was to be the primary leader. It's also recorded that although it created as the leader, he needed a helper. And in the next lesson, we'll look at another important difference between the man and the woman as God created her to be the complimentary helpmeet that he was in need of. Until that time, may the Lord bless and keep you and help you in your desire to grow as a biblical woman.